wonderful. Y'all can have a seat. Um, while you are doing, and before we pray, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 21 as we continue moving through the book of Acts. Uh, one thing that I want to just remind you of is as we are taking about a chapter at a time, uh, you know, every single week in Acts, it is, it's difficult to come up here and try to read through an entire chapter. Y'all don't even want me to do that. I don't want to do that. Uh, so if you would, uh, be disciplined to read the chapter. We send out an e- uh, email kind of every week before the gathering, just saying, hey, here's the chapter, here are the verses, here's a a little tiny uh, appetizer about what we're going to be talking about. So if you would, make sure just to read the chapter before coming, uh, just because that's going to help us move along uh, in a given morning. So once you've found uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 7. But let me do this. Let me pray for us uh, before we get started. Bow with me. God, you are holy, holy, holy. And and the uh, cherubim and seraphim, they they fly around your throne, uh, covering uh, eyes and feet, and they're just too creaturely to be in your presence, to be in the presence of your righteousness without singing about it, without just telling you that you're holy. So, Lord, this morning, uh, it is in our mouths as well. You are holy. You are merciful. You are mighty, God. You are worthy of uh, passionate praise. And so this morning, as we take our attention and turn it towards your word, would we know this morning that you have spoken to us? You've not left us to go it alone in this world. You speak to us because you are kind. And Lord, this uh, word that is sitting in front of us, this written word is no uh, less powerful, no less your word than if you uh, appeared here this morning and spoke it to us. So, Lord, will we uh, just approach your word with that mind about us? Lord, will we not uh, gather together around uh, a speaker or some singers or around even a table to take communion? Would we gather around and hear what it is that you've said because you care for us? And, Father, we pray that over your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do have a question before we read the text this morning. There's going to be some disorderedness in, uh, in this morning. So if you've been around, if you've been with us for a while, this is not going to be kind of a normal sermon. Normally, we do a lot of exposition, but there's an application uh, here in this text. There's actually several of them that I want to make haste to. And if you know me, that's actually not a normal thing. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to move through things pretty quickly. So if you're like, man, we really just didn't exposit this the way that we normally do. Don't judge. That's where we're going this morning. We've got some important things uh, to learn. Kids, we've got lots of kids in here this morning. We've got kids with us most of the time. We have not been able to kind of build back up to where we can start a big kid city uh, back again, uh, kind of post-COVID. But we are on the way. We are uh, talking about it. We're making plans to. But in the meantime, I, I've got a question for you kids in the room. I want you to pay attention to the question. Of what are you afraid what, what makes you fearful? Is there something in your life that just regularly you have some amount of reservation and fear about? Is there something that just uh, gets your heart and, and you just you freeze? You're a little afraid of something. If you're, uh, we want to comfort you a little bit uh, as children just to know that all of the adults in the room have had uh, a lot of the same and similar fears that you have. We've been afraid of the dark. Many of us, too, ran and jumped onto the bed so that nothing could pull us out from underneath it. Uh, we, we know what it is to be afraid of the dark. Or maybe that's not, uh, that's not you. Maybe there's just a, a fear of being lost. 
Um, I actually was lost in a 50-story building in Hong Kong when I was like a little itty-bitty kid. The, uh, my, kid my parents, like, they walked up, people got off the elevator, I got on while they were getting off, and the doors closed, and my parents had no idea where I was, and it was a frightening experience. It was a really frightening experience. Probably not even as much for me as my parents. Are you afraid of getting lost? You'll, you'll know and understand, uh, kids, that the older you get, um, not the fewer fears you have, but maybe the more sophisticated they, they get. Uh, us as uh, adults, we have fears too. So I want to ask the adults this morning, too, of what are you afraid? I want you to give it some real thought. What is it that in this moment, uh, maybe just this last season, is causing fear in your heart? Maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's uh, money, just wondering whether or not you're going to have enough of it at the end of each month. For many of us, though, it's not something quite as tangible. If we really plumb the depths of our hearts, we would find something else. We would find that we are more afraid of being misunderstood or just making a wrong vocational decision. Man, I, I took this job, but I wonder what would have happened if I had done something else. Maybe that's the kind of stuff that your fears are made of. Maybe it's uh, you're really, really afraid of being like your mom or dad. You like do something, you say something, you sit a certain way in your car while you're driving, and you're like, my dad did that. I'm becoming exactly like my parents. And we're afraid of that. We're afraid of being exactly like them. Maybe you're afraid of failure. Maybe you're afraid of growing old. The idea of sitting in a nursing home one day is like the same feeling that you would get in claustrophobia, like that's how you feel about getting old. I don't know what it is, but here's what I do know. Every human being, kid, young, old, we've all got fears. We've all got things that uh, cause us to be afraid we live in a time and a place where our fears aren't necessarily always for physical safety. They run deeper than that. They run into our heart. And we know when we hear something like what I'm about to say that it is true that there is uh, an antidote for fear. There's one among many, but there's one anecdote for fear, and that's courage. What is courage? Courage is the confidence in something larger than yourself to, that enables you to confront fear. Courage is a confidence in something larger than self that allows you to confront fear. And we all have a sense of what courage might look like, and we all value it when we see it in others. If you see someone who has just a virtue of courage, they're a very confident person, you look, you, we tend to look at that person and go, man, I want that. I want courage. They don't seem to be afraid of the things that make me afraid, and we value it. This is because most of us have an acute sense of our own insecurities, our lack of insufficiency, and we're just not confident. I think that most of us subconsciously long to have confident courage, and we see a raising need for it in ourselves and in the culture around us. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you would, with me, look at verse 7 there. <clears throat> when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 
While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we would not, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. What we're going to discover as we kind of unpack this passage and the other verses around it is that the courage of Christ, the courage of Christ creates confident Christians. Okay, I went through a lot of trouble there to make all of those start with C, so I really, I want for us to appreciate it this morning. The courage of Christ creates confident Christians. So if you were just kind of examining the fears of your heart and you're like, man, I want confident courage, guess who's going to give it to us? It's the courage of Christ. The courage of Christ creates confident Christians. And what we've got to do in order to kind of unpack that this morning is ask three questions. Whom do we fear? Why do we fear them? And where can courage be found? That, those are the three questions that are going to help get us there this morning. So if you want to write those down to be able to kind of follow along But what we have to understand is is that Paul has met up with Luke. You you may have noticed this last week in Acts. So Luke is actually the writer of Acts. He wrote Luke, of course, and then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. We call it Acts. It should be called, I think, the Acts of God or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, not the Acts of the Apostles, but it's called Acts. And he's written this. In last chapter, we see uh, the word we starting to be used. And the reason why, I think, is because Luke has found his way uh, up into kind of South Asia, where, where uh, Paul was kind of marching down towards Jerusalem, and he's met up with his friend named Paul. So he's not just giving us kind of a secondhand account or something that he heard that was inspired by the Holy Spirit in Noah's scripture. It, it, he's giving us a firsthand account of what is actually happening. So Paul is there. He's met up with Luke in Asia, and now they are headed on a boat towards Jerusalem. And Paul's goal is to meet up with James and the elders there in Jerusalem before he heads on his final journey, which he believes will be Rome. That's what he's already expressed. That's his desire. And he's experienced a lot of grace in God through his ministry, but he also has endured severe trials. He's been lied about. He's been beaten. He's been jailed. So he's seen all of these really miraculous things. He's seen throngs, thousands of Gentiles come into faith. And he has also been beaten up. He's been lied about. He's been stripped naked in front of people and flogged. He's done a lot. He's been in the midst of a lot of things. So Paul is here now coming to Jerusalem, and he's confronting some people that are saying, more trials are ahead of you. And Paul's natural kind of constitution seems to be pretty stalwart, and his experience has kind of tempered him. It's made him hard to all of these trials. But we've also seen over previous months and weeks and days that he's human. 
We, we see this in his writings too. He talks about uh, the things that he wants to do he's not able to do because in the spirit of his flesh, he still is beholden to sin. We see that in Romans. We see that uh, Paul is not a perfected person. So he is a courageous person, but he's also human. And so the question is, as he marches towards Jerusalem, Paul is warned about danger that awaits him in Jerusalem. Does he have anything to fear? Well, Paul is warned by prophets, if you go there, you'll be bound. You'll be given over to the Gentiles. Their brothers and sisters are there pleading with him not to go. Why? Because fear has kind of entered into the picture. Fear has entered into the picture. So the first question is, whom do we fear? Whom do we fear? For Paul, there are three groups of people that he has at least the potential to be afraid of. There are three groups of people that he's going to confront in Jerusalem. And we see, starting in verse 10, we see exactly who that is. Agabus, in verse 10, comes down from Judea. Judea is kind of northern uh, Israel. He's coming, down to, um, <clears throat> he's coming down there to meet with him. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. So no unclarity here. He is proclaiming something that he believes is going to happen. And he takes Paul's belt, and he binds up his feet, and then he separately binds up his hands. And in verse 11 says this, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind you and deliver you into the hands of the Gentiles. Now this is the same thing that has been happening in other cities. This is not something that's new to Paul. He's pretty familiar with this whole process now. He kind of goes into new cities expecting it, but there is something new about this. We've not seen yet in Acts any prophets come to him before he enters the city. A lot of times he'll go into a city and he'll spend sometimes even several years there, and the persecution generally happens towards the end because people don't really care about this guy that's come into uh, their city that doesn't have any influence. They don't know who he is, but then once things start to change, he endures persecution. This time is different. The prophet comes and says, here's precisely what you're facing when you get there. And I wonder if just hearing those words had the potential to incite fear in him the same way that it did with the people that were around him. We get the sense that Luke is telling this story about Paul's march towards Jerusalem the same way that he did when he was writing in Luke about Jesus' march towards Jerusalem. There's some parallels that are really neat here, and we get the idea that Paul is going there in some of the same ways that Jesus went there, and now he's being told, you're going to be in danger once you get there. And like Jesus, we can see that Paul has both Jews and Roman, uh, Romans to fear. But there's also one more. There's one more group of people. The, the Jews and the Romans were people that were persecuting him kind of all along the way. But there's another group of people that he might have something to fear. Read with me in chapter 21, verses 17 through 22. 17 through 22 says this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers gladly, received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders. I want to stop there. Uh, James was at this point one of the leaders in Jerusalem. So he was one of the leaders' leaders. He was uh, a person that was helping lead the church there in Jerusalem. On the following day, Paul went into James and the, all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God and said to him, you see, brother 
how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles for, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? Do, do you hear who it is that he might have something to worry about? Uh, another group that he might have something to be afraid of? We, we see that these Jewish Christians hear that Paul is doing something along the way, and it's a problem. Paul has uh, been making disciples of thousands of Gentiles, but he's been doing that in uh, Gentile nations. But the same thing is happening in Jerusalem. And that's what these uh, brothers, that's what James is telling him. Hey, listen, while you've been away, we've seen thousands of Jews come to know Jesus as well. There's been these really great things that have happened. But they're also really zealous for the law. They're, they're, they're zealous for the things of their tradition as well. And they weren't naming that as a bad thing. They were saying, hey, they're followers of Jesus, and they are also compelled to follow and continue along with the traditions and customs of Israel. And what they've been hearing is not that great to them. They're making some assumptions about you. Maybe there's something that we should do. They believed in Jesus, and yet they are still traditionally and proudly Jewish James fears for Paul. There's kind of this beckoning for fear in Paul. So there are these three groups that Paul has to fear, and they're Christians, they're Jews, and they're Romans. So the deck is kind of stacked against them. So when we ask the question of who are we to fear, who, who do we always fear? Who was he always fearing? Well, the Jews and the Romans, but now the Christians. The Christians, this was Paul's people. It was his clan. It was his tribe. It was, uh, these were the people where he belonged to. It was the people that he belonged to. So he's hearing this kind of new. This is something that's fresh and new. It's something that he hadn't faced before, that he was maybe even to be fearful of his own people. Then second, it, it was not just Paul's people. It was also the culture the Jews would have made up the culture there in Israel. And this was a culture and a people of the city. And it was surrounded at that time by Rome. So he would have been marching through all of these other Roman cities. And he came up against Jews all the time. But they weren't the primary people that were in those cities. So all of these people that had persecuted him were just a small kind of uh, diaspora. It was a small group of Jews within a city, and he had them to fear in other cities. Now he's going straight into the heart of Jewish culture. He's going straight into the heart of it. A little bit more on that in a moment. But the third group of people that he has to fear are the Romans. But it's not just Rome that he's kind of uh, afraid of. It's power. It's the structure, it's the government of the city. And so what we see is not necessarily three groups that he's afraid of. It's, it's three things that all of us have to be afraid of. There's a clan that we're a part of. I wonder if any of your anxieties are kind of wrapped up in uh, the clan that you're a part of. Being a part of a people, a tribe, isn't always easy. Carl talked about this last week. Being a part of a community is not always easy. 
But he's not just afraid of this maybe people, but he's also afraid possibly of the culture. He's not just afraid of the culture, he's afraid of the power and the structures. So we may not be headed up to Jerusalem like Paul is. We may not be like Jesus going there to die, but for us, these things represent a few of our own fears. Christians have some sense of fear, good or otherwise, of our government and power structures. We've seen them misused and abused to persecute and to promote injustice. And it may not be right, but it is real that Christians throughout time have had some fear of the governments that rule over them, just like Paul did with Rome. Christians have always feared the culture that we are surrounded by. It's the water that we swim in, and when it becomes toxic, it's something that we can fear. Culture is suspicious of Jesus. It's suspicious of us, and at times represents the possibility of real harm. Are you afraid of culture this morning? Well, maybe it's not just Paul then. Maybe it's us too. Maybe this has some application to us here People everywhere for all of time have had some amount of fear, even within their own people group too. I want you to think of it. You love your church, but there's probably not one of us who gives some evidence of how we've been hurt within our church, within our family. The things that we belong to, those things that are most intimate to us, sometimes are the places where we are most hurt. We have something to learn here. There are different environments that represent possible fears, possible harms to us, just like Paul. But what we need to understand is not just who we fear, but why we fear them. Rightly or wrongly, we have the potential to fear power and culture and even the people groups that we are a part of, maybe even possibly the church. Why? Why do we fear them? For Paul, there were several specific reasons why he might have been tempted to fear them. The first was the fear of his reputation. Look there in verse 21. They've been told about you. What does that say to us? That says in verse 21, uh, these elders, this uh, James is telling Paul, hey, listen, they're talking about you. This is not something new. It's just good old-fashioned gossip. Anybody been hurt by gossip? Paul's being lied about here. What are they saying about him? They're saying that you teach all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That was a really substantive claim. It was a really substantial thing that they were saying that Paul was doing. It would be as if you had been away, you know, to college and you had come back to your home church and the people there had been told that the entire time that you were gone, you were proclaiming heresies. You, you have something to come back into uh, where your reputation has been harmed. This is exactly what is going on with Paul. Paul and the others had reported back about the mighty things that the Holy Spirit was doing through Paul. You would think that his reputation among his own people would be sterling, but this is where the deceiver comes in. Lies were spread about Paul. Jews returning to Jerusalem. I'm actually convinced because we've seen Jews go from like Antioch to other cities just to rail against Paul, to put him down, to, put, uh, to squelch any amount of, uh, of invitation that was coming into the gospel. 
I'm convinced that Jews were coming from Antioch. They knew where Paul was headed, and he was com- they were coming there to spread rumors and lies about him. But Jews returning to Jerusalem were telling Christians that Paul was out there speaking against law and custom. Here's what we need to know and understand. Who were we afraid of? We've talked about it. Why are we afraid of them? Our reputations are important. Lies about our character run deep. Confusion, animosity are the things that spread up from that. I wonder if you see that happening today. Because it wasn't just Jews. Like, we're using Jews as kind of a stand-in for the culture that Paul was going into. Does anybody hear something out there in culture that is a lie about Christianity? Of course we do. We live in it all the time. People are suspicious of Christians. The culture talks against Christianity, spreading lies about who we are. We confront this every day. This is not something that's unique to Paul. It's something that we have to learn as well. People everywhere have always had some amount of fear within their own people group too. So these Jews are returning, and they're, they're talking about the reputation of Paul. We see this today, that culture is spreading lies and making demands and intimidating Christians about some of the things that we hold most dear, and they are all too glad to turn Christians against Christians. And I want you to think about this personally and denominationally. If that's what culture is seeking to do, what ought we do? Jesus died to make us one body, to make us his people, to unite us together in the Holy Spirit. What Christians should do in the face of this kind of adversity is have solidarity and be gracious with one another so that we are not tempted to eat our own. We don't let these lies spread about us. We ought to give brothers and sisters the benefit of a doubt, extend grace, and not cancel one another out. But that's the fear of reputation. The the second was the fear of culture itself. It's not just the lies that cause reputational harm within our people. Agabus took Paul's belt and literally just bound up his feet and his hands, and he says, this is how they will bind you, feet and hands. Verse 32 says that uh, he was bound with two chains. We see this come to fruition in this passage. There are two chains that are put on him, feet and hands. Why? Verse 27 said that Jews from Asia, who I believe had followed him, said this and made this appeal to Israel. Men of Israel, help. This man, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. What are they saying? They're saying he's against us. He's against our culture. What they're trying to do is circle the wagons in some way. The Jews are literally trying to say, hey, listen, this is the guy who's trying to tear down uh, Jewish synagogues across the world, and he's come here to do that in our temple. That's what he's trying to do. They're bringing a false charge. They're saying he's come down to deteriorate our culture and we must fight back against him. What what kind of charges are they levying against him? In in verse 28, we see that um, they're they're saying that he brought an unclean Greek into the temple. That that would have been punishable by death. To, To bring someone who is not a Jew, who is not ceremonially clean into the temple would have been a big problem if he had done it. 
But Paul didn't do that. They're making up lies about what Paul had done. So what did they do? They rioted and they seized him, verse 30, and they sought to kill him. This is what culture always does. It demands fealty to the culture. It identifies heretics and it offers them up as a sacrifice. Christians will always, in some way, find themselves opposing culture. Why? It's because we have a different God. It doesn't matter how kind or nice you are as a person. If you say that Jesus is king, regardless of which kind of culture you're in, you're going to be opposing that culture. I'm not saying that uh, that that should justify us in being like angry and being uh, vengeful or harmful or going out there and casting dispersions back on culture in ways that are ungodly. I'm not using this as something that justifies that kind of behavior. All that I'm doing is being real and saying that we live in a culture whose God is not ours. And we shouldn't be surprised when we find them tell us that that's true. I wonder, I wonder how you see this dynamic at play in our culture today. Think about it for a moment. What, what is the first thing that springs to your mind? What's that thing that you care about most? What's that element of a, a biblical worldview that you say, God said this, culture is saying this. I can't go with culture because I know what God has said. What is it that springs to your mind? What is that thing that you are most passionate about? I wonder if it makes you fearful. I wonder if those kinds of things cause you to fear. I wonder if you've been living in a season of fearfulness and anxiety for the last day, week, month, year, years. I wonder if you've been living underneath that fearfulness. Lastly, there was fear of power. And it, it was played by the part of Rome. I already mentioned this, but in uh, verse 31, it, it says that they, they had drug him out of the temple. They had begun beating him, and word of what was going on came up to the tribune. Now, the tribune, uh, this was a really powerful guy. So, centuries were over 100 soldiers. Uh, the tribute was over, uh, over those centuries. And so what happens here is that there's this little office that kind of oversees, it's like a little perch that oversees what's going on in the temple because the Jews wouldn't allow for Romans to go into the temple, but they were very, the, the Romans would have been very interested in what was happening there. And so when it says that the word came up to the tribune, that's precisely what had happened. Somebody had observed that there was near riot going on down below, and when word came up to him, he took several centuries and soldiers and came down to see what was happening. And what they find there is this man being beaten, and they make some assumptions about him. They make an assumption that he's this Egyptian guy that was there to, uh, with several assassins, and they were going, uh, he was there for that purpose. We're actually going to deal more with that next week because Paul kind of responds to all of that. The tribune comes down, and if you were wondering, 
where the power really is. It's often not in the culture, but it's in the governments. It says that they were seeking to kill him, but in verse 32, when they saw the tribune, they stopped beating Paul. The Jews knew that they couldn't just go around beating everybody that they wanted to, so they stopped. Because the real power was there with the government. The real power was there with these Roman soldiers. This guy would have brought in quite a lot of just power into this situation. And so what they did was they said, hey, everybody needs to cut that out. And then they arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound. And the government was all too glad to assist the culture. And the tribune says, you're not allowed to dole out injustice. That's kind of our thing. We've got a monopoly on this. Paul, therefore, had plenty to fear. He had uh, his people, he had a culture, and he had these power structures that he was fearing. I wonder if Paul was fearing the loss of his reputation, fearing these false charges, fearing the the canceling of culture, fearing the injustice at the hand of power. Who do we fear? Why do we fear them? And finally, where can we find courage? This is where I really want for us to get serious this morning. So we've done the Bible study so far this morning. We kind of know and understand a little bit of the passage. Here's where I want for us to take a strong kind of pivot towards what do we learn here? What are we to do? Where can courage be found? Do you want courage? You want confidence? I think that a lot of us here in this room, we, we have some sense of like our inadequacy, our insufficiency, and we go, hey, you know what? I'd quite like some courage right now. I admire it in other people, and I just, I don't have it. I want it. Where can we find courage? For Paul, the courage that he needed was not found within him, but without. It was not found inside of him. It was found in something greater. Paul knew what he would find in Jerusalem even before Agabus told him and before the others pled him not to go. How do we know this? It's all because of his response in verse 12. Look at it with me. Don't trust me. Trust the word of God. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am not ready only to die, only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. So so what is it that we find here? The, The people are urging him not to go, and he says, what are you doing? Stop weeping. Stop breaking my heart. I'm not just ready to go there and be in prison. I'm ready to go there to Jerusalem and die. Why? It says it right there in verse 13. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And and when they found out that they couldn't persuade him one way or the other, they said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul was willing not only to be imprisoned, but also to die. And he tells us precisely why that's the case. And it's because of the Lord Jesus. Paul is marching towards Jerusalem just like Jesus did in Luke. And I'm convinced that Luke is drawing this parallel so that we can learn something. Paul knows the danger that Jerusalem poses to him, not only because of Jesus' crucifixion, but because of something personal. Paul was one of the ones who killed and persecuted Christians. Where? Where did he persecute Christians? 
in Jerusalem. This wasn't ethereal. This wasn't philosophy to Paul. He wasn't in this moment saying, yeah, I'd be willing to be in prison. Not sure if that's going to happen. I'd be willing to die. Pretty sure that that's not going to happen. He knows firsthand that this is something that could happen. I was talking with my kids yesterday about this. I was talking about the danger that this actually posed. Here's the truth. When we just read it here, when we sit in pews and we just receive it, we forget to think about it. I told my kids yesterday, can you imagine, we're about to go and drive into Fort Worth. We live just outside of the city here, and we're driving into Fort Worth. Can you imagine the kind of fear that we would have if somebody was waiting in Fort Worth to kill us? That's what Paul's doing here. It's not something that's intangible to him. Why? Because he's one of the people that did it to others. He knows what's waiting for him there. And he's not afraid. And he doesn't want anybody weeping. Doesn't want anybody breaking his heart. He's willing to die for Jesus. Here's what we need to know and understand. Courage comes first by knowing who you are, and second, by knowing whose you are. Courage comes first by knowing who you are. See, most of us think that courage comes by way of greatness. Courage does not come by way of greatness. You don't make yourself great and then become courageous. Do you see? That's not, what, that's not what happened with Paul. And thank goodness for that, because most of us are just so unworthy of having of having this courage, this confident courage that we so desire. Courage instead comes by way of meekness. You see, the virtue of humility must precede any enduring courage. We know this because Jesus was humbled. Jesus was humbled. Do you know this? Philippians 2 talks about him emptying himself. He didn't didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, so he emptied himself by becoming in the form of a human. He became humble. He became humble so that we might have courage. Paul knows this too. Paul knows how unworthy he is. Paul has been humbled. He calls himself the greatest of all sinners. Courage comes first by knowing who you are, knowing that you're a sinner, knowing that you are ingrate, knowing that you are undeserving, knowing that you are meek, and then, second, by knowing whose we are. Jesus was perfectly courageous. Jesus was perfectly courageous. I want to turn just one moment. You don't have to uh, join me here, but in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, We see this. Jesus is foretelling his death, and he began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days, raise again. And he said this plainly. Now, now here's what's funny about Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is going along the way, and he's teaching his disciples, or he's teaching a group of people, and admittedly, he's using really confusing parables. It's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, theologians have spent the last two millennia dissecting and learning some of these things, and they're not even in agreement, but here, what the Son of Man is saying is, hey, I've got to die. 
and I've got to be raised in three days. And what is Peter's response? He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He rebuked Peter and said, Satan, get behind me, for you're setting your mind on the thing, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. I wonder if that sounds familiar in this passage. <laughs> Paul is going, hey, I hear you. You're going to go there. You're going to be bound up. You're going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are sure to kill you. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're breaking my heart. I'm not afraid of death. Why? Because the courage of Christ creates confident Christians. It creates confident Christians. Where does this courage come from? For, for the great, from the great and everlasting and confident courage of Jesus Christ, we can set our things on the mind, not on the things of man, but on our Savior Jesus. I want for us to really internalize that this morning. If you're a person who wants confidence, who wants courage this morning, there's one place that it can be found. It's by delivering yourself over as a humble man and taking your identity in Jesus Christ. It's, it's just going, I don't have an identity that's great or worthy of any kind of courage, but Jesus does. This courage of Christ, this courage to confront sin on the cross and then give us over His greatness, that's what we need. We need the courage of Christ to know that our identity is not in our feeble efforts, but on the secure work of Jesus Christ. Because if you do that, who in the world can stand against you? The battle is already won. It's already finished. Everything's already done. The kingdom has already been inaugurated. You're just waiting to see Jesus show up and throw Satan into the pit of hell. Like, that's all you're doing. You can have total confidence, complete confidence in a mighty Savior. So how do we use that kind of confidence? How do we use this courage that we're being called into? What does this courage allow us to do? Well, well the first thing that it allows us to do is, is actually something that I've kind of already mentioned, but it is so important, I'm going to mention it twice. Courage allows us to be self-forgetful. Courage is not making a lot of yourself, it's forgetting yourself. Courage allows you to be so secure in your reputation with Christ that you're not driven by your own reputation or by being a part of a church or being uh, winsome with culture or being a part of the power hierarchies. It's not driven by those things at all. It's driven by our reputation in Christ. But, but here's where we see this in the passage. It's very interesting. James is essentially telling Paul, your reputation precedes you. And if you did the reading, we don't have time for it this morning, but I really I want you to get this. Paul is coming out of all of these supposedly unclean nations. And what would have had to have happened is he would have taken a vow, which we already saw in weeks prior. He would have marched towards Jerusalem, and he would have been making you know, efforts to purify himself as he gets closer and closer to the temple. 
What James comes up showing Paul is, hey, listen, this is what has been said about you. You're unclean. You're telling people to disregard Moses and the prophets in our culture. You're telling Jews not to be circumcised. They've got the wrong idea about who you are. You need to cleanse yourself. This is Paul. Does Paul need to be cleansed of sin? Does he need to be cleansed before he can come into the temple? No. The answer is no. Paul was already cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He had nothing to atone for, nothing to be uh, cleaned up from, nothing, no, no alms to make, no sacrifices to make, nothing. Why? Well, what about going into the temple? He was the temple. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have, you are the temple for the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? You don't need to be making sacrifices to become clean. You don't need to be cleansed. What does James ask him to do? If you've read the passage, what does James ask him to do? Asks him to take an oath and work towards purification. He's asking him to do something that he doesn't even need to do. Your reputation precedes you. You need to purify yourself and not just purify yourself. You ought to, since you've been telling other Jews in their minds, telling other Jews not to adhere to the law and the prophets, you should pay for other people to do it. Is Paul required to do it? Of course he isn't. Paul was pure in Jesus. He didn't need to be cleansed. A few chapters earlier, just to make this even more confusing, Paul tells Jewish Christians, hey, listen, you hear these Jews, um, or sorry, the Jewish Christians were there telling people, hey, you need to be circumcised as being a part of a believer. And uh, Paul has no small disagreement with them. You remember that language? Has no small disagreement with them, and then ends up going to Jerusalem to confront the issue with James and the other elders and saying, hey, listen, your boys are in my town and telling Gentiles that they need to be circumcised so that they can be clean. We're all on the same page, right? They don't have to do that. And they said, yeah, you're right. The Holy Spirit has, uh, has made it very plain, very clear that Gentiles do not do, need to do anything other than being saved by grace through faith in order to enter into the kingdom of God. However, there are a few things that we would like for them to do. Don't eat meat that's been offered up to idols. Don't, you know, eat anything that's been strangled. There are a couple of things that we want to make sure that you're not doing. Uh, be sexually pure. And Paul goes, got it. I'll take the letter back. It's very curious, right? These are not things that these Gentiles would have been required to do. Paul's being asked to do something that he's not required to do. And you might be asking at this point, why are we making such a big deal of this? Why are we making such a big deal of this? Paul requests that Timothy be circumcised after telling others that they didn't need to be. Why? Because he was about to go minister to Jews. He takes the rites of purification in this instance, even though he knows with a clean conscience that he doesn't need to do it. Why? Because he has the courage to be self-forgetful, to submit to others in the church, to be gracious. He has the courage to sacrifice his own freedoms for the sake of others. Practically, I want, I want to relate this to like our present situation. Maybe you're hearing already, you're like, man, I'm already like halfway down this road. Let's just be clear, okay? This last week, our governor uh, lifted the mask mandate starting this next Wednesday. 
He, he said, listen, we're not going to have a statewide thing that says, hey, you got to wear a mask. And there are people that have already started just raising cane about this. Why? Because some people want us to wear masks. They think that it's wise and safe. It's good. It's healthy. Other people say, hey, listen, I have this uh, conviction about not wearing a mask. I think that I have actually the image of God and covering it up. I just don't feel like I should be able to like um, be required to approach God and worship God with a veiled face. You start seeing some of like the tension between these things that's happening here. And what Paul is doing is he's sometimes, I mean, he's, he's proclaiming truth. He's telling people, like, here's the doctrine, and then at the same moment, also being willing to just be flexible and gracious, and he has the courageousness to do it. So I want to get practical for a moment here, okay? And I want to do it in a way that I want to celebrate first. Here's something really beautiful that's happened at City Church, and it looks so distinctly different than the culture around us, and I really want to celebrate it. Last year, when the mask mandate started rolling out, in order to come back to gathered worship, we said, hey, it might be wise that we adhere to some of these things, even though the state allows us some latitude, where, where they're not going to come into a church and say, hey, you're doing all of these things. We live in a state that was not going to enforce a mask mandate in religious circumstances. But we said, hey, listen, we want to be wise. We don't want to be, you know, uh, we don't want to live outside of some of these laws. And so we just thought that it was wise. Hey, we're going to request masks. And then along the way, as, uh, as people have returned to worship and everything, a, a few of you have decided, hey, listen, just by conviction, I can't, I can't do it. I just, I can't come in. I, I just feel a conviction where I see that, um, you know, I'm supposed to approach God with unveiled face. And here's how I interpret that. And you know who's raised Cain about that? Nobody. Not to my knowledge. I haven't heard a word about it. Man, that's beautiful. I just, I mentioned this in my uh, thing that I sent out this week, if you read it and everything. I think that's beautiful. I think it's amazing and beautiful that God's people would be wise and kind and gracious enough to say, hey, listen, some of us are going to have this conviction, others of us aren't, and we're just going to be under a banner of grace with one another. So what are we doing next? What are we doing now? Not much is going to change, okay? We, we are, as a church, going to lift the mask mandate starting next week, okay? We've requested it but not enforced it uh, in the past in an effort to be gracious. I know that some of you have strong opinions about it. It's totally fine to have those. It's, it's fine to talk about those things. We're, 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 we're doing great. It's not something that's worth dividing over. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to lift the mandate, for it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, that's our official policy. We're going to lift the mandate. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do personally. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about anything. I'm a pastor. I'm going to continue wearing the mask for the next few weeks, see what's going on, see whether or not we have a spike, those sorts of things. But here's really why I'm going to wear the mask. I'm going to wear the mask over the next season uh, just because we still have people that are a part of our body, that are covenant members of our church who have not yet felt comfortable because they have pre-existing conditions, they have these sorts of things that have just uh, inhibited them from being able to return to a gathering. And I want to love those people so well. And I want Christ to be the stumbling block. I don't want a piece of cloth or uh, anything else to be a stumbling block from somebody else. So I'm going to wear it. So I invite you to continue wearing it. I don't know when we'll call, when I'll feel comfortable or when I'll stop doing it, but we're going to lift the mandate 
just so that people that aren't wearing it and then aren't required by law in any other circumstances to wear it don't feel ostracized from us. If you want to come, we're not going to be judgmental of you, okay? Or, or where there is, we're going to try to apply grace to that situation. And, and if you're a person that's like, no, I have to wear a mask, great, wear the mask. We're not going to judge you either. If you're somebody that's in between where you're just like, I just want to love people, I don't really have strong convictions either way, man, I think Paul gives us a really great, courageous, confident, self-forgetful posture here. And I think that if we put our minds to it, I think if we apply our hearts to it, if we continue to live in a kingdom that is not ours, but that is solely Jesus's, we can continue modeling the kind of beauty that I feel like we've had here at City Church to a culture around us that wants us to fight about it. Okay, so I, we're not, we'll have clarifying things coming out in, uh, in the weeks to come and everything, um, you know, just to, to further clarify if it's needed, but uh, that's where we're at right now. The clock always fights me. I, um, I'm going to mention one more thing. Courage also allows us to oppose culture when it's necessary because we are not culture's people, we are Jesus' people. So with that same sense of like generosity, gratitude, and grace, I want to mention one more thing that we're going to be doing. I've already mentioned it partially. A few months ago, I said that we're going to be unapologetically teaching truth. Our culture does not have or own a monopoly on truth. God does. And he speaks it to us. And so we have a lot of things that are going on in culture that we don't, as a church, necessarily want to promote and uh, propagate. We don't want to continue to add to any confusion by not talking about them or uh, teaching on them. And so what we're going to do is we are going to continue where necessary. Know that we are humble sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that we have nothing to fear. But practically, our church is going to talk about some of these issues more frequently. I, I, I hear the questions from our body, like questions about uh, gender and about sex, the, uh, questions about education. There's a lot of things going on in our culture right now. And, and here's the raw truth, the raw data of all of this. I guarantee you, on average, the average person in this church has 10 to 25 hours of shaping by media, social media, uh, news, things like that, to every one hour that we get to shape one another in this space or in our discipleship groups. We're just, the culture is trying to convince us of a lot of things that God says no or yes on. And I think that we owe it, uh, I think we owe it to God to talk about those things and just to be honest about them. So I want for us to have courage as a church and to apply it in the very practical way of knowing that City Church is not, will not ever be a political church. We will not endorse political candidates. We will not play in the political space. But Christ's kingdom is not limited to things that are non-political, but actually extends out to everything. And it doesn't go back upstream from politics to God. So when our church speaks on the things of the kingdom, it may relate to political topics. But here's what I want you to know. When we approach those things, we're going to be kindly courageous. 
We, we may in, in the coming weeks, I, I, don't, I don't know when we will do this, we will do this as uh, Scripture kind of bears out these things, but I really do believe, I believe and I hope you believe that when Genesis 2 says that God made them in His image, male and female, He created them. We, you know, if we think that, if we think that God's Word says that, we might owe it to people to actually say that that's what it says. And to be unashamed that God gives like His beautiful, amazing image to women and that women are women. But when we do it, I want for us to not just be courageous, step on you know, people's toes, be unkind. I want for us to be kindly courageous. So if that's not where you want to go, that's fine. But that's not the type of church that you'll be a part of. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to show and display where that gospel reaches into all of God's kingdom. So that's a weird way to end because that's not how I was planning on ending. But that's where we're going to end today, all right? So here, here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Andrew's going to come up and lead communion. We're going to sing a few more songs and everything. And if you have additional questions, if like just stopping so abruptly, or if anything that I said really causes some concerns, if you've got questions and everything, I'm sticking around afterwards. We, we can do like a little public forum, and we don't have to be afraid of anything, because we can have the courage of Christ. Bow with me. God and Father, you give us everything that we need for a life in godliness, and that includes courage. Father, we want to be a group of people that is so molded and shaped by the courageousness of Christ that we are recreated as confident Christians. Father, I want to be a part of a city church that is just gracious and loving and kind, but also always willing. In, uh, in our dealings with one another here as a part of our clan, our people, uh, this tribe, to be courageous. I want for us to be uh, in culture, but not of the culture, willing to speak uh, to culture the kind words that you have given us in your word, and for us always to be primarily about your word in our heart of hearts. Father, I want to be courageous in your word and speak to culture. Father, I also just want to uh, consider all of the things uh, that come underneath the rule of your kingdom, the power, authorities, uh, uh, systems and structures, hierarchies. Lord, and I want to be courageous with those too. Father, only you, only you can give us the courage of Christ. And so we plead for it, we ask for it this morning. And we ask that you would give it to us, uh, not only uh, because of or in the name of Jesus Christ, we want to claim it this morning because Jesus has given it to us on the cross, given us his identity, his confident, courageous identity. Lord, we love you. We ask all of these things in the mighty name.